Welcome to season five, the final season of Been There, Done That, a pandemic survival podcast. In this show, we've been talking to some real life experts on how they've been getting through this time filled with unexpected changes, challenges, and still those darn feelings of helplessness. And those experts are everyday people like you and me. Turns out we have been more than prepared for this moment than we ever would have realized. So let's get started and see what we can relearn one last time. All right. It's later than expected, but as the saying goes, better late than never. This is our final interview for the entire podcast, and it's April 19th. It's a Monday. It has definitely been more than a year since the beginning of the pandemic, um, but doesn't quite feel like it's just been a year. It maybe feels like a few years, maybe even a decade or two. Um, and we are, you know, right at the near 100 day mark of a new president, um, a new administration. Um, we have been three months into the Biden administration. We have gone from winter to spring officially. Um, and for many folks, this is now, you know, almost like a repeat, like a groundhog's day of sorts, because right about now you're looking at your Facebook or your Instagram and your social media, and you're recalling what it was like at the beginning of the pandemic, what it was like in March and April of 2020, just last year. And so it feels like we're in a new place. And so we are joined today by um, Dr. Jennifer Perdomo, who became Dr. Jennifer Perdomo in this year as well, um, officially graduating from medical school, right? The, the beginning of, the, of all these interviews, Jennifer, you wouldn't let me call you Dr. Jennifer Perdomo. So now I can and have been uh, basically the second half. And so before I go into some details of, of where we're at with things, um, I'm just curious, just leaving it open. Um, how are you doing these days? You know, you're, you're a new doctor and a new mom. And that was one of the issues with trying to land this interview, right? Like new mom, <laughs> new doctor, new schedules. Um, so how are you in general? And, and how have the last couple of months been? Um, in general, I feel like right now things are getting better. Um, at the beginning of the year, it was kind of rough because I started after my, well, basically like just tracing back to the beginning of my year when I was still pregnant. And so I had rotations that were less um, time consuming. Um, and so afterwards, now, when I started the new year, I had a whole bunch of rotations in which I was mostly in the inpatient setting, which means that I'm in the hospital versus in the clinic setting. Um, so I started my first rotation for our medicine service on in January. And that's kind of, you know, it's still at the kind of the peak of the last surge here in California. And so I kind of walked into a huge mess and everybody just kept promising me like it gets better. It's not always this way. You know, like I was kept, which basically means as interns, we can only see a maximum of seven patients while we're on our medicine service. And so from the very beginning, I was at seven patients. I was leaving 
at eight o'clock and people would tell me, oh, when you have your pager in the morning, then you usually get to go home at three, but I was not going home till six, even when I had the morning pager. Um, so that was really heavy. And after that, I was in the ICU. Um, that was an interesting transition um, because, uh, you know, at the beginning, the first two weeks, um, the entire ICU floor was what we called purple zone, which is essentially um, isolated and COVID units. Uh, and so that was like very difficult as well, because as reassuring as it was to see less of the purple zone. So there was, there's four wings. And I think after the first two weeks, the, the two of them were back to like clean zones, quote unquote. And then by the end of it, there was only one left. Um, and in a way that seems like it's reassuring, but in that interim, most of the people who were in the purple zone were dying. And so that's kind of, and then, you know, we weren't getting in new patients. So um, I think that month was particularly difficult, especially realizing that, um, you know, you kind of, you know, you know it, you hear it in the news, you know, the public health that like people of color are mostly, have been mostly affected in terms of the severity of COVID. And it was like blatantly apparent in the ICU where, 95% of our patients who were COVID and intubated were persons of color. Um, so that was also very difficult as well. Just, you know, it's like, I knew that was the reality, but I think being there and then realizing and then having those conversations with patients, like tell and telling them like, you know, this is not looking good. This is where it's heading and having conversations with families once patients were intubated, that was all very difficult. And thankfully now, um, you know, there are no purple zones in the hospital and our service has not had any patients who've been COVID positive, thankfully. So I feel like things are turning a page in that sense. And like being at work is um, becoming a little bit lighter in terms of emotional um, and just kind of being able to just actually you know, feel like I'm making a difference in terms of like patients being able to leave the hospital and not feel this grim feeling that, that, you know, something grave will happen. And in terms of being a mother, um, you know, that all, it kind of just, I feel like because of like how difficult work is, it's kind of just been placed on the back burner sometimes. It's like really hard to come home and the baby's asleep. to leave and the baby's asleep. And then to come home and have to block out everything that's going on at work for that. Yeah, that was really hard. And it still continues to be hard. And um, my partner has been very supportive and I very much appreciate him. And he's been very fortunate to get a new job recently. Um, that's afforded him a lot of opportunities. Um, but unfortunately, that means that he's traveling. <laughs> and so that makes it difficult as well, because it's less time, um, you know, with my partner, somebody who, like, I know I can rely on to just talk, talk to about whatever's going on at work. Um, 
to know that one of the baby's parents is with him. And so that's been like very hard and just like trying to remind myself that despite the hours that I'm not here, that I'm still a good mom and that I'm doing the best that I can. So um, yeah, I think people ask me like, oh, what's harder, like motherhood or residency? And I think people expect me to say residency or like, because for a lot of people who don't have families, residency is so difficult. Um, but honestly, I feel like motherhood has been a lot more difficult for me than like residency. No, but overall, uh, I think it's just like, I, I don't know. I feel like being a mom, like I just feel like there's certain like expectations that maybe like I'm putting on myself and, and I just kind of think like, Oh, what are other people thinking? Like, Oh, you're not, she, like, she's not with her daughter or like with her son, <laughs> um, with her baby and she's not spending enough time with him and, or she's not doing X and Y. And I don't know if people actually think that, but I think that I feel that way. <laughs> um, Has anyone told you that? Um, Even in a no. backhanded comment way? Um. Well, I feel like sometimes people say that to my partner now that he's like kind of away from work, like with longer hours at work. So I'm like, if they feel that way about him, like how do they feel about me? That oh, it's away they'll, so long. they'll say things about him being away for so long. Yeah. Like, oh, mm-hmm. like you're not, oh, when you're here, you're like not like spending time with the baby. And, and then I'm like, well like that's kind of like me too right when I get here like I'm like oh my god I'm so tired like I'm gonna spend 30 minutes with the baby but I'm like really really tired and I want to sleep um so yeah I just like I guess I imagine like what do people think in terms of like how I'm being as a mom and then at work like in a sense it feels like like I'm there for a certain number of hours and there's also expectations of course, like being a physician and then like transitioning into like bec- now that I'm towards the end of my intern year, like now next year, I'm going to be considered a senior and there's going to be interns that are looking up to me. <clears throat> and I think I do feel a lot of pressure in that sense, but I feel like residency is as, as weird as it sounds. And I don't think this is like a good way to look at it, but this is the way that I've looked at it so far is that if I have to make time up, like say that I, you know, am not able to qualify for them to feel like I'm a sufficient um, doctor to transition onto my second year, like I accept that. And, and I am willing to give the time that I need to become the best position that I could be in order to serve my patients, because I definitely don't want to be in the position where you know, I'm on a 24 hour shift by myself and there's a patient and I don't know what to do with them because I was not prepared enough. Right. So if it means that I have to take more time so that I can be prepared, then I'm willing to accept that. But I feel like motherhood is not something that I could do again. Like I can't go back and say, Oh, um, you know, like I let me go back to like when the baby was born and um, you know try to breastfeed again and hopefully it'll work out this time like I you can't do that and I think like maybe now talking about it maybe that's the thing that you you can't really do these things over again like you and then there's moments that you're gonna miss and then 
you can't see those moments anymore. Like you, they just come and go. So, right. Yeah. Well, I, I understand the concern and the difference, right? That you can't make up these moments as a, as a parent potentially. Um, whereas you could make up the, the training experience um, time as a, as a doctor. Mm-hmm. I get it. And wow, you are so hard on yourself, Dr. <laughs> I, I just, I just want to get in between you and you and say, Hey, Hey, <laughs> great. I don't, I don't know what's going on here, but everything's, everything's doing, going well. And everyone's doing just fine. You know, I, yeah. do you remember what it was like to be, um, under one year old with your mom? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> so, so, um, does your mom remember what it was like when you were just under one? I, I don't think so because she claimed that I was always a smiling baby. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure as a newborn, I did not smile. Mom, <laughs> Newborns don't smile. <laughs> She's like, you would wake up and you would just be happy in regards to how um, Oliver was like a very cranky baby, newborn. Um, yeah. She was just like, what is wrong with him? And I'm like, he's a baby. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think what I'm trying to get at here, my friend, is yeah, um, I know. this was going to be a blurry time anyways. You know, like you're not really sleeping a lot and you're probably sleeping more actually than many other uh, first-time parents because you know how important sleep is for your yeah. job. And so yeah. you're probably sleeping like a lot more than other first-time parents. And at the same time, I hate to break it to you, or maybe this will be exciting. Parenting is for life. So, you know, it's yeah. not like a patient or a job where you see them for, you know, a, a few minutes, maybe they move, um, maybe you never see them again, you know, things kind of transition and change. But this child for the rest of their life and yours together will be around. And so, you know, I, I can't wait for you to, to read or listen to these interviews when Oliver is like in their teenage years like 18 and really annoying the heck out of you so that you could be like and to think and to think I wanted to be around you more you know like they're people they're human beings and they're developing and I can't stress enough that so are you like you are still developing and still a person and um you know I think what's funny is is this comment that doctors and, and other folks, um, you know, your coworkers now are telling you things like it gets better and it won't always be this way. Have they mm-hmm. been through a pandemic before? Like, what are they referring to that it will get better? You know, like these are not regular times mm-hmm. for someone to begin, you know, this part of their medical career. So um, it's interesting to me that it won't always be this way. Um, is still something that we're saying. It's almost like Mm -hmm. that gives me hope. The idea that it won't always be this way versus we got to get used to this because this is the new normal. And and that's kind of been the debate that I have been hearing and tracking Mm -hmm. in stories lately. It's like, on the one hand, 
we're trying to get back to some sort of normalcy. People are buying mm-hmm. flights again. People are starting to visit people and go outside. And California, where you live, is completely opening up in just a few weeks. You know, no colors anymore, no restrictions, no anything. So we've got this return to, quote, normalcy or, you know, return to the way it used to be. And then there's also a whole nother thing, which is like, yes, we're returning to what used to be in terms of inequity, inequality, all of these kinds of things. And we're also in a new normal moment. And so I'm just wondering, what do you think is not going to be changing? What do you think is a new groove in how we do everything? Is it, is it the PPE? You know, like when, when we first started talking, there was a PPE shortage, right? There were people mm-hmm. like using masks over and over again. And slowly yeah. over time, you started talking about, you know, those being around and available, you know, with yeah. some frequency. Um, but we still have, you know, folks who are getting COVID and we still have folks who are, who are dying. It's not like the death rate is zero in the yeah. United States. What do you think is going to stick around? Yeah, I definitely think the PPE is going to stick around. And I feel like possibly, um, you know, even when, let's say, things get so best, like so well, and everyone gets vaccinated, and then we say, like, it's okay to not wear masks. And I feel like people are still going to wear masks. And I at least hope at least when people are sick, that they'll think, oh, maybe I should wear a mask. Mm -hmm. I think the big thing is that a lot of people still have the misconception that Um, you know, obviously there's a certain level where the mask is protecting you, but, you know, the biggest thing is that you wearing the mask, if you're sick, helps to protect another person who isn't sick. That's like the, the bigger picture. So obviously if we all wear masks and if like any bug, it doesn't just have to be COVID, you know, is we are protecting, you know, the other person, um, from getting sick. So, I mean, I feel like hopefully that becomes the norm. I feel like definitely in the medical field, I feel I don't foresee us not like not, not wearing masks. <laughs> um, and definitely like in the hospital, having patients wear masks because, you know, kind of like both ways we want to protect our patients, but we also want to protect ourselves. I need to ask you a question about the whole yeah. mask wearing because Um, For those of us who aren't in the medical world and who Mm -hmm. try not to, you know, go places um, because we're all still afraid about going to doctor visits still and these kinds of things, right? Mm -hmm. Most of what we're starting to see now in pop culture is these medical shows, right? Like Grey's Anatomy um, and New Amsterdam and these other shows about, you know, nurses and doctors and and staff in a hospital. Um, And they're wearing different kinds of masks. So um, on Grey's Anatomy, they have a mask where like you can see their entire face. It's just got a clear shield and there's like an oxygen or something pump that comes mm-hmm. out the back of it. And it's like in a backpack. Like yes. Helmet. Does it have a helmet? Yes. It's like a whole yeah. helmet. And then other folks mm-hmm. are just having, you know, like the face, you know, surgical masks, the cloth masks um, or the paper masks, I guess. And then maybe like a face shield. And so I guess I'm just wondering, like, what's real? What are you wearing on your face? What's your PPE when you go in? Yeah, so if it's like just I'm on the regular medicine service and I'm seeing mm-hmm. patients who have been admitted to the hospital and are COVID negative, I'm just wearing a simple face mask. Um, 
Um, I, when I remember to, I'll wear um, my goggles, um, just like regular goggles. Um, and it depends. Like I've seen some like people in the hospital, like for, if they're even if they're not in a COVID unit. Um, who wear N95s um, because they feel most comfortable that way. And I've seen nurses who wear face shields. This is definitely a comfort thing in terms of the one that you've seen on Grey's Anatomy with kind of like the clear shield-like thing and the oxygen thing. Usually I only saw those when I was in the ICU Mm -hmm. and they're usually used... um, when they're going to intubate patients um it's basically so some people would worry because the sides had like a hole and you didn't have like a complete seal on the sides but Mm -hmm. really the it's it's not meant to be like completely sealed the point of the mask and with the like quote-unquote oxygen is actually just like putting positive pressure um to avoid like anything coming in basically Mm -hmm. so it's just like pushing Mm -hmm. everything out um and so usually when um the icu the critical care doctors wear those when they're going to intubate a patient if they're going to do like a um tracheostomy um or or any like aerosolizing procedures which would cause like a higher chance of covid spreading basically so would that is that like the best the full face shield with the like, you know, air and pressure, like taking out everything else. Like, is that the best sort of form of PPE? Essentially, I guess so. Yeah. Cause so why doesn't I mean, everybody have that? Because there's only used like in high, basically when there's high aerosolizing, there's a high chance of aerosolization of the COVID. Cause otherwise the mask, like the N95 is, sufficient um to if it's like worn properly and has a proper seal um if you're not doing like an aerosolizing procedure which would mean that the particles become smaller and easier to like sneak in places oh yeah no i got that point i guess i'm wondering if that's the best why isn't everybody using the best i don't know is there a limited supply there are i mean there's like yeah, there's definitely limited supplies if you have to put it back. Um, it's much more um, time consuming to put on. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't have like an exact reason why, but they are, they are, there are only limited ones. And I know for sure, like, for example, and on our team, when I was in the ICU, there's a fellow which is basically a doctor who's gone through residency and now is doing additional training to become specialized. Mm -hmm. So she was being specialized in critical care medicine. Um, And so she had one that was like hers and she just kind of like kept it and like, and then, um, and then one time when I went with one of the attending doctors um, to do a tracheostomy, um, there was, I think maybe like, eight in this like box where they keep them but like yeah it says like please return back and like you have to make sure to like sanitize them before you put them back for the next person to use um, yeah. is this on a potential birthday or christmas wish list for you like could you get your own and have your <laughs> own is this where we're at i don't know actually i've never looked into it um, 
But I, I mean, mean I these definitely, are, these are those be, things, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it would, if you're not like in a COVID unit, like people would probably just look at you like, what the hell? You're being very extra. <laughs> um, but see, that's, that's the thing. Like yeah. so if in a hospital wearing the best type of mask will get you a response from other people in the medical community that you're being extra, don't you think that's going to happen on the outside of the medical world? Mm. Like for those of us like myself and others who recently have been, you know, informed publicly and privately about the fact that the vaccine is going to do actually very little to protect us by getting it right. Like I have friends who um, have gotten transplants, uh, you know, life-saving necessary organs. Um, they were involved in the John Hopkins study recently about whether or not um, all bodies are actually able to produce these antibodies, mm. even after getting the vaccine. I'm on that really fun medicine called rituximab that, yeah. you know, specifically targets B cells. And that's what we need in order to make the antibodies. And so my medicine, my cancer medicine is killing the vaccine, right? So like the vaccine isn't enough. And so there's conversations and talks about needing booster vaccines, um, mm. how frequently we're going to need uh, to get the COVID-19 uh, vaccine uh, along yeah. with other things. And so I guess I'm just wondering, you know, there are many of us who are going to have to keep wearing a mask, keep being mm -hmm. distant, keep doing mm -hmm. remote work in life, if you will, um, mm -hmm. because of the dangers of the vaccine and us not having that kind of a relief are we going to be seen as extra? I definitely don't think so. I think that the N95 mask is definitely sufficient in terms of like protecting someone from mm -hmm. getting COVID-19 um, in the case that there's not an aerosolizing procedure. Um, I don't think it's necessary to wear it, but I mean, if it makes you feel better and you have the means to buy one of those, then I would... I mean, there might be people that look at you strange, but I mean, there was people looking at us strange when we were first wearing masks. And there's people who still laugh at all of us who wear masks, um, who mm. think that this is all a fad. So, you know. Good point. Fine. Point, Dr. Perdomo. All right. Yeah. So, so, here's, so here's a question that I have for you before I get into my litany of uh, medical questions for you, um, which is, you know, you talked about seeing, you know, the stories and the numbers and the rumors out there about inequity in death and um, what was happening in the hospitals in terms of who was getting sick and who's dying. And you knowing, you know, hearing those stories, reading those stories, um, knowing statistically that that was probable and believable. But then you said, you know, that seeing it in the ICU and seeing it in the hospital and seeing it for yourself in terms of how many people of color were sick and struggling and dying, um, that that was very different. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, why was that different? Because us on the outside, we don't ever see what you're seeing. And so if it hit you differently to see it instead of just, you know, knowing it, why do you think that that is? Why was it so much more difficult when you saw it? Yeah, I think um, what was very difficult is when it came down to um, talking with families and 
really trying to get families to understand what their family members were going through because they don't, unfortunately, were not able to see their family members. You know, sometimes they're like, okay, like, you know, despite this person being like at an age where possibly, you know, intubation and resuscitation will likely cause more suffering and pain than it would any alleviation from what was going on. Um, you know, families wanted to continue like extensive measures and it was very hard. You know, at that point, it becomes very hard in the sense of feeling like you, you're doing by what the family wants and what they know of their family member and what they would have wanted. Um, but then inside feeling like you're going completely against everything that you took an oath for and causing more suffering to this patient. And so really like, you know, having patients understand like, this is what the process of like intubation is like, intubating somebody is like, this is what the process of resuscitating someone who has, you know, now renal failure from COVID, who is now, um, you know, has a large clot and they're on top of having, you know, COVID pneumonia. Now they also have like a clot in their lungs as well. Um, what does that mean in terms of us resuscitating them? If they are able to get a heartbeat again, you know, we have to do all these other processes. Um, and so I think that part was hard, you know, just like realizing that the patient's we're going to die no matter what I tried to do and no matter how hard, you know, the families were trying to fight for them. Um, and just really coming down to like trying to help families realize what was going on with their family member. And I think that part was most difficult for me. And there was only maybe like two families that there was one very, very frail um, older woman um, who came in, she could speak, she understood things, she was very short of breath, um, requiring very high levels of oxygen. Um, she lived with like her daughter-in-law. Her daughter-in-law, you know, was kind of like, I'm not really sure what she would have wanted. Um, and she wanted me to defer to the patient's son. And then turned out that the patient's son actually lived in Texas. Um, so he at first was very much like, yes, like, please do everything that you can. And so, you know, we did and up to the point of where it was like giving her like the, um, the plasma um, from, from people who've had COVID before to help um, to give her the uh, steroids um, to start her on like trial medications for like studies. Um, and then just progressively day after day, it was like, she would, she already had um, dementia at baseline. Um, the first day I remember she was so agitated and the people and the um, nurses in the ED kept paging us like she's very agitated. Like, can we put restraints on her? And we really don't like to put restraints on patients because it just feels very inhumane. Mm -hmm. um, so I would, I went down multiple times to the ED because she was a Spanish speaking woman and whenever she had somebody who spoke Spanish to her she would calm down and she would get a bit reoriented 
Um, and then once she was in the ICU, it kind of took a turn. She became very agitated to the point where she wouldn't even respond to me anymore when I would speak to her in Spanish. Um, she, we, we did end up having, unfortunately, to um, place restraints on her because she had a, a mask on for oxygen and the nasal cannula. Um, and she was trying to rip it off. And if, if it was off for even any moment, she would go from like a very tenuous, like 90 to 92% to like seventies. And so if, if she didn't have that oxygen, she would have died. Um, you know, I had several conversations with her son, um, and he eventually decided that she should be, um, you know, she should be, um, not full code anymore. So just like, do not resuscitate. Um, and he came to see her. Um, and after he came to see her, um, you know, he he decided that on comfort measures for her. And that was very difficult for me in a different way where I felt like a part of me felt happy that I was, that she died in a peaceful way and not intubated and us trying to bring her, you know, back to life by cracking her ribs and trying to bring her heart back. Um, but it, it also felt very sad because I saw her go from like, even though she had dementia at baseline being somewhat coherent and someone understanding what was going on to just completely not, you know, not knowing where she was, um, not knowing, probably not recognizing who she was um, and just being in such a tenuous state um, and just in a lot of pain and discomfort with the, you know, oxygen pushing into her lungs um, so much. So that was difficult, um, you know, so it's, it's like both, you know, both sides of the like um, pendulum kind of, and there was one happy story where this wasn't, he wasn't my patient. He was a Spanish speaking young guy. Um, and he ended up needed to um, get intubated. Um, and he was, I remember, I don't think he fully understood what it meant because when I, you know, explained to him, you know, we have to intubate you, your, you know, oxygen level is this. Um, he was like, oh, you know, I think it was just because I was, I think he was like moving around or something. And that's kind of like when his vital signs started to take a turn and he kept kind of trying to push it off. And then I was like, I'm, you know, we did give him some time. I remember we were in that unit on where his um, room was for longer than usual during our rounds. Cause we were just kind of like watching him to make sure that things didn't turn for the worst. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it turned out that they did. So um, he, um, you know, was like, oh, can I, you know, talk to my wife? And then he was FaceTiming his wife and, she, you know, they were like, I love you and all this stuff. Like, I think both the, the fellow and I were just like trying to hold it together in that room when that was happening because we didn't, you know, we expected that because he was young that he was going to have success. Um, but it, it was still very sad. He then asked me for his cell phone and the fellow was at the bed of the bed, uh, the head of the bed. And so she could see over his shoulder and she was like, oh my God, he's texting his mom. 
he's telling his mom that he loves her so much. And if, you know, if he doesn't come back, then he just wanted to let everyone know that he loves them. And we were just, we, you know, it was like a very devastating moment. But he also told his wife, um, you know, oh, like, don't worry, like, I'll be back. Because he asked me, how long does it take? And I said, well, you know, it could take like 15 to 20 minutes. Um, but then he was telling his wife and I'm like, oh, but you know, I did, like, I didn't even know how to tell him after I recognized that he didn't realize that he was going to be sedated and unable to talk to his family anymore. Um, you know, I had to tell him, you know, actually, unfortunately, because you will be intubated, we have to sedate you because it's very uncomfortable. And so you won't be conscious and you won't be able to talk to your wife. And then he asked me how long. And I said, well, it could be up to two weeks. And then after that, we kind of make the decision if you're not doing better, you know, kind of explain to him further. And then he was like, well, like, you know, I think he like very much didn't under, like fully grasp it until I had to really explain it to him. And thankfully, after I left the ICU, um, the fellow actually messaged me that the resident that was taking care of him told her um, that he had been extubated and that he was like progressing well. Um, that was like a very happy story. Um, I remember like talking to his wife and they were Spanish speaking. So I, the last day that I was in the ICU, I told her, you know, this is my last day. Unfortunately, you know, somebody else is going to be updating you. And she was very much like, oh no, like she very much appreciated having a Spanish speaking physician on the team, even though I wasn't necessarily the one taking care of her husband. But that was a happier story of the ones, but we definitely saw a couple of patients who didn't, you know, do so well. And having those conversations with families was very difficult and trying to really make them understand um, about quality of life versus, you know, just prolonging life. Um, for whatever reasons that they wanted. And it was always difficult to respect family's wishes when you felt like you were doing bad by the patient by continuing care. So, so am I to understand that both of these patients then passed away? The patient, the younger gentleman did not pass away. Okay. Um, the older woman did. Um, did. Her her um her son chose comfort measures um which is essentially um you know no longer providing um care and it's just providing comfort and allowing the patient um to die as comfortably as possible so where where do you stand on on that like right now you know, like understanding that that might change over time as you get older, as you have more patients, as you have different kinds of patients dealing with different kinds of things. You know, the oath is to do no harm as a medical professional. And yet, you know, hearing you talk about these, some of these, you know, cases, the harm is being done in trying to save somebody's life. Right. Yeah. So there's there's the ultimate save the person's life. And then there's save the person's quality of life. You know, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. you know, you can you can keep a body 
alive with machines, with medicine, um, with all kinds of artificial life-saving treatments. But that individual's quality of life, the kind of life that they have is, is not the same. You know, and, and we've been talking about what stays the same. What do we return to? You know, like as folks are getting COVID-19 and all the after effects of getting it um, or other diseases, you know, it, it does change how your life is. And mm -hmm. so how do you balance that? How do you balance do no harm and quality of, of, of life? Where do you stand on that? Like, what would you want for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think it's definitely like an evolving, um, you know, an evolving thought for me in terms of like what I would want for myself. Um, but I definitely agree. I mean, I feel like in medicine, even we took that oath, you know, do no harm, like you said, but for the most part, most medications have side effects. Um, um, any treatment we do, we always consent patients because we talk about risk we talk about benefits and alternatives. Um, and of course, meaning specifically that there are these, you know, risks that can happen with whatever we do in medicine. Um, for me, I think it's always definitely case by case. Um, you know, we had one patient in the ICU who was very, very young, and he was like, I do not want to be intubated, based off of like what he's heard in the news. And, you know, in that case, then I was kind of like, well, like, let, you know, let's talk about this. Like, let's reconsider. I think, you know, there are options available if you were to be intubated, things that, you know, that can be done because you were so young, um, you know, versus someone who may have, you know, a, a very, you know, extensive, um, you know, disease process and may not necessarily be COVID, um, who, you know, who has a very low prognosis. Um, and then knowing that they would likely um, not have a good outcome from full resuscitation. Um, it's always kind of like case by case, just kind of figuring that out. And obviously, like at the end of the day, it's never, um, like our decision is always the patient's decision and we, um, you know, respect that autonomy. Um, I think for me in terms of making or helping patients make their decision for codes, um, it's always just presenting the information to the best of my knowledge, right? Because I, even, even if I think that someone could prognostically not do well after a code, I I can't predict the future. I don't know, you know, what will happen. There's cases of people who, you know, get resuscitated for several months are pretty much, you know, non-responsive, comatose, or, um, you know, just like you said, kind of like a body that's like on life support. Um, and then miraculously one day respond. And right. I can't, I can't say like, you know, like, well, how would I feel if one day that person was in the hospital and I, um, you know, explain these risks to the family and saying they probably wouldn't survive another code. And then something, God forbid that person had a code and then we didn't, you know, we said, okay, nothing. Yeah. And then, you know, then 
were like, oh, I, I helped that family make that decision. And now their family member who was responsive now is dead. Right. So I think like it's, it's always very difficult and there's always like these blurred lines and ethical dilemmas with, sure. with the codes. Um, yeah, I, it was very difficult, I think. But for myself, I think currently I would say I would want measures unless the prognosis is like that they predict that I will not be able to, you know, survive, then maybe I would consider um, otherwise. So on a massive scale, is that mm-hmm. what's happening right now? Like across the globe? Are we having some kind of a global conversation about, is this all still worth it or should we? Because, you know, we're at a place where not every country on the planet is getting access to even one of these vaccines. The U.S. has access to three. Right now, Mm -hmm. Johnson & Johnson is on hold. We're Mm -hmm. learning that if you get the vaccine, there are many differences that um, are the, quote, risks or side effects to women versus men. Women get these sort of... um, you know, things show up in your lymph nodes on whatever side you got the shot. So mammograms are coming up with these like really interesting visuals. Like, is that a lump? Is that not a lump? We're Mm -hmm. learning that women who are able to breastfeed um, and have gotten the vaccine are able to pass on some of that vaccine to, you know, newborn babies. Um, Mm -hmm. We're learning that maybe COVID-19 doesn't spread as uh, intensely on surfaces than it does in the air. So people aren't cleaning mm-hmm. and wiping down everything in the same way um, that we mm-hmm. used to before. But J with J uh, vaccine has had a, a pause because of these blood clots and, and mm-hmm. deaths that have happened because of it. But again, most countries, most, the majority do not have access to any of the vaccines. And even those of us who do have access to the vaccines and who have even gotten it, it's, it's not completely working for all of us individually. There are folks who are also having those um, allergic reactions to the vaccine and can't mm-hmm. get the second shot. It's not working for them either. So there's actually a fair number of folks where the vaccine is not working to protect us and we are saying yes to taking it. Then you have folks who are saying, no, I'm not taking it. And then you've got folks who are taking it and they're fine, but it's three different pods. No, I'm not taking it. Yes, I'm taking it and it's not working. And then those who are able to take it and it is successful, which all comes down to our different qualities of life are not the same. Our medical prognoses are not the same. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you know, wearing a mask and staying away from large crowds is in many ways the one thing that keeps us the safest but what kind of a quality of life is that being in such Mm -hmm. constant isolation and in such constant inequity um where do you see things going in the next like few months like where do you see things going in the next year like you said that things are, are are better now, right? Like we're not in this purple zone. People aren't there. There's all these variants. How how are you feeling mm-hmm. about where things are going to be going? Yeah, um, I'm definitely hopeful. 
Um, you know, I, you know, we do that in terms of vaccination, like my, my thoughts are always like herd immunity, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like, per, like, for example, we always get like vaccines for other things to protect um, those who are more vulnerable, such as newborns who are unable to get vaccines and certain vaccines until they're um, a certain age. Um, and also, um, you know, for example, with the flu vaccine, protecting those who are um, immunocompromised, those who are elderly, who have more severe um, effects from the flu. And then in now, in this case, COVID. Um, so, I mean, I'm hopeful for herd immunity. And I think that I predict things will slowly get better. I I'm worried that we're opening things up too soon. I'm, I feel like, yes, especially like in California, yes, like we have more access um, and a lot of people are getting their vaccine. Um, but I feel like there's not enough information yet to feel um, safe enough to be like in large crowds um, at all times. You know, even for me, like I'm starting to, like, okay, let's go like do something like, I think two weeks ago, it was we went to the what is it called the LA Arboretum. So I was like, well, it's like a large place open. Um, yeah, it was Easter weekend. And so I was a little bit worried that it was Easter weekend. because I thought there was gonna be like a flock of people. But thankfully, it's like organized by time. So, you know, we had enough distance between like other family families, and everybody was wearing masks. Um, but I'm hopeful to to at least do little things like that, um, yeah. But I I think it's definitely more difficult, like you mentioned, for for those who are uncertain about how the vaccine is working and if it's working for them at all. Are they at the hospital that you're working at providing any sort of you know? Um, mental health or are you finding moments or time where you can get away and talk to other, you know, coworkers and colleagues and just sort of, you know, chat about the emotional sort of stuff about the job? Like, do you have a place to put all of this? Yeah. So within my, I don't know about the hospital itself. I'm, I think they do. Um, within my residency program, though, we do have like our all of our faculty is definitely like very open, have you know, open doors like to we could vent about anything, even if we're like complaining about the program, um, you know, about these, you know, you know, deaths and all that. We also have um, every month in our residency program, we have something called Valent, which is basically where we kind of one resident will can choose a case that they've kind of been thinking about and doesn't necessarily have to be someone who died. It could just be, um, you know, an outcome that maybe you didn't like or um, a patient that you're kind of seeing and then you can't really, you know, figure out what's going on with them and you kind of want more opinions and just kind of listen to different perspectives. Um, we've done that. And I've, I've actually only been to two groups because um, since I was gone for a long time and a lot of the rotations I had done previously, I was away. 
Um, but now that I've been around and I see very much the, like the value in that, like just, I haven't shared any of my own stories, but um, like listening to others and then like just seeing the resemblance of like the emotions that we feel um, with, with the relationships that we build with patients, even when they're very temporary relationships that we build with patients. Um, that's helpful. And then we also have um, I, our residency group itself is just very supportive. So like I have a big who I basically talk to about anything, like whenever, like for example, when Fernando told me he was leaving, I was like, oh my God, Fernando is leaving for a week. And <laughs> I just like bent to her and like, like it doesn't even like, she doesn't even need to say anything like necessarily yeah. reassuring. I just need somebody to like, you know, you know tell. Um, and then like today he told me he has to stay a week longer. So then I was like, she's staying a week longer. <laughs> um, and um, for that first block of my medicine service, um, I had a patient who was actually um, a, um, a custodian in our hospital. And I actually never met him because he was admitted by another resident and it was before any of the interns got vaccine. So as an intern, we weren't allowed to see COVID patients, like known COVID patients mm -hmm. until about maybe the second week that I was on that first block. So I didn't meet him because he was admitted like at the very beginning. So my senior saw him and he was actually her patient. Um, and I remember that his family was out of the country. And so I had a lot of conversations with them. Um, and then um, when actually, when I was in the ICU as a month later, he passed away. Um, but my attending at the time um, when I was on the medicine service and still taking care of him peripherally, um, she kind of was like, you know, how are you doing? Um, you know, you're having a lot of difficult conversations with his family. And I also had another very sick patient who was intubated um, and I was having conversations with their family as well. And so like our faculty in themselves are like always checking in on us as well. And I remember like, I just started to cry to her because um, I remember like at the beginning when he came and he was like, he was sick, but he was stable like for a very long time before he was intubated. And even when he was intubated, like he, he never got bad really quickly. He was like stable for a really long time. And then out of nowhere, I just started to have like irregular heart rate and like started to just get really sick really quickly out of nowhere. Um, so even when he was stable, I remember that the senior who took her, would take care of him in the clinic um, before he was sick had told us about this. Um, he had onychomycosis or basically like fungus in his nail. And he had come to clinic for her to help him with it. Mm -hmm. um, and his nail was like curled over um, to the side, kind of, it was on his large, um, on the large digit and then kind of pressing into his second digit. So it was causing him a lot of pain at work because he was like, he used like work yeah. boots and everything. 
Um, so she like clipped it and then so she showed us a picture because she took a picture that day in clinic to like put into the chart and she like clipped it with like these large clippers. Um, and I remember we would laugh at that story because we would be like, oh my God, like his nail is so bad. And then apparently on presentation, he like his nail had grown back and she was like, she was just like, oh, like when he comes back to clinic, I'm going to cut his nail again. And like, for me, like, I just imagine, I always imagine like, oh, like the day that I was going to be able to meet him and he was going to be out of the ICU and no longer with COVID. And then just kind of like when he got, when he started to get go south because he was stable I was just like oh he's gonna get better he's gonna get better and when things went south I was like it just kind of hit me like oh my god like I'm never gonna meet him I'm never gonna know him I met his like his family was basically like I spoke to them every day and they were like out of the country and then they some of them traveled here to try and see him and were unable to and so that was like yeah, that was hard. And so being able to talk to her about it was, um, was good. And that was like the first time that I had, like, I just like broke down because I hadn't really talked about yeah. it or really thought about it. You kind of just like go through the motions, make the calls, get the specialists and, um, you kind of sit down and actually have time to think about it. It's, it's difficult to process, but I'm glad that our program has that available. And I'm, like I said, hopefully that's also available to these like nurses who have, you know, been in the, in the worst of it, being there and seeing the patients at every moment and seeing their, their decline. I want to um, ask you one last question. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I also want to know, you know, we've been talking a lot about quality of life mm -hmm. and that includes quality of parenting. So I just want to remind you that it's not necessarily about how much time you spend with Oliver as much as it's about the quality of the time that you spend with Oliver. Are mm -hmm. you really present when you're present? Are you um, mean and angry? Are you upset? Are you um, scolding? You know, like there are ways in which you could leave an imprint that is really, really hard and that's the only time that he gets. Mm -hmm. But I know that that's probably not what you're doing. And mm -hmm. so it's not necessarily about the quantity as much as it is about the quality. So I just really want to drop that there. And as much as you can share what happens at work with Oliver, when Oliver can like really understand it, then mm -hmm. that's where you get to bring work home in like a positive way and influence them all the time with like, my mom is a badass. My mom is really great. This is what my mom does. And these are the things that I want to do. These are the qualities I want to have. So I cannot encourage you enough to focus on the quality and focus on sharing who you are and work with Oliver. Um, as soon as my mom, who was gone a lot, started doing that, it was like a whole nother level of parenting. And you know, I'm glad she eventually did it, but she didn't do it until I was much older in terms of telling me and sharing with me her life in that way. And it was so meaningful and so important. Yeah. So focus yeah. on the quality. And my last question to you is, what advice would you give to yourself? You know, like we started out the podcast with, have you been here before and how did you get through it? 
you talked a lot about, you know, med school and um, we talked a little bit about, you know, different moments and tragedies globally. Um, but you've been through this year now and you've gotten through it. So mm -hmm. I'm curious if you were to leave yourself advice in the future or leave advice for Oliver in the future of how do you get through a really hard moment like this? This is that moment to give that quality time to Oliver. Like, yeah. how did you get through this last year? And maybe you carry that forward with you. Yeah. Um, I think that the biggest thing would be like to be kind to yourself, even though I'm still learning to do that. Um, you know, like, remember that you've done difficult things before and that if you could get through those things, you could get through other difficult things. Um, you just gotta take things moment by moment and rely on those that you have around you. I think that's always really hard, especially for someone who's like in medicine, who like always feels like they want, like they wanna give to others and feel like they should, they should be the only ones responsible or so you know relying on others it's a big thing that I've had to learn to do um what else um, don't remember to stop doing the things that you love um even if you're in a pandemic and you can't necessarily like you know at the beginning when we were very scared to like go out for runs like if that means doing like workout videos with your sister in the living room or you know your sibling or your family whoever you have around you um or if that means like just getting a little sunshine on your porch um like don't like even if everything else seems like very dark and difficult like nature is still there and it's still going and has a lot of beauty and restfulness to offer I feel like um, I think that's something I didn't realize like at the very beginning when Oliver was born like I was just indoors all the time and with like my postpartum anxiety like I was just always inside because I felt very nervous and I didn't ever want to go anywhere and when I started realizing like going outside and even Oliver would calm down when I would go outside <laughs> so I feel like always I I don't know I guess maybe because we're like in this generation so stuck on like technology and like being indoors and don't appreciate the outdoors as much like I've really this past year I have come to appreciate that and so don't ever forget that nature is is a place for uh, for healing as well I feel like I don't have very great advice to offer other than like, Those are perfect. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Talk about quality of life. You know, yeah. like go outside those trees, those plants, that dirt, this planet has somehow managed to live through some pretty horrific things. And yeah. if there are any teachers and lessons to be learned about quality of life and, and do no harm um, and relying on others, it's going outside and doing all of those things that you just mentioned. Um, I appreciate your work. I appreciate your time. I appreciate everything that you're doing inside and outside of, 
uh, work in this podcast. And um, I just really appreciate you this last year. And I hope that you continue to continue to see things moving in a positive direction. Um, and if they don't, I think that you're still going to be okay. And we're so lucky to have you in that position and in that place. I, every story that you shared today was about being the Spanish speaker who's sharing information and talking to families. Um, and if I think back to our earlier interviews and conversations, and even just our earlier than the podcast conversations, that, that, has, been, that has been your mission. That is your yeah. job you know, to be there mm -hmm. and to help people who look like us and our parents and our grandparents and our families mm -hmm. and to say like, you know, we're, we're going to be all right. And we yeah. can tell you that in our home language. So yes. gracias, doctora. It's been really great to have you on the podcast and to have you in the world. So appreciate oh, you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And I can't believe it's been a year already. You've been listening to Been There, Done That, your pandemic survival podcast sponsored by the New Economy Coalition, a membership-based network representing the solidarity economy movement in the United States. Visit NEC at neweconomy.net. Until next time, I'm your host, Felicia Perez. Stay well.